thank you, Darren. Uh, you know, he's, he's made this big deal kind of in all the Facebook pages and publicity about my coming and everything. And, you know, it's really overdone, but he's, he's kind of a big promo guy and everything. I, it it kind of reminds me, I was speaking at a mission conference in Dallas a few years ago, and it was a really, I mean, it was a big multi-church conference and, and really a powerful experience. Just the anointing, a lot of commitments. I mean, the altar was just full. I just wish you could feel that sense of God's presence in all of them, and he just really blessed. And there was an emeritus missionary there that was, uh, you know, in attendance. Quite a few missionaries were there, but he was getting on up in age, and he came up to me just really enthusiastic and excited, and, you know, I don't know, his, his demeanor didn't match his words, but he said, Dr. Rankin, that was a tremendous message Every time I hear you, I never fail to be disappointed. And, uh, you know, I thought, uh, excuse me, you know, I, I just want to assume he was having a senior moment and kind of got mixed up there. But, uh, you know, I don't want you to have too many uh, expectations here because, you know, we, we don't like to think of our mission experience in the past because we're still making those mission trips and going overseas and involved in what God's doing uh, around us and traveling. But we realize that... You know, our age is getting beyond most of you guys, uh, even you, Benny. Uh, <laughs> but uh, glad to have someone kind of in that generation. Uh, and I remember hearing Vance Havner, great American evangelist, years ago before he died speaking. He was, he was really uh, well up in his 80s. And he said, well, people are always asking me, how do you keep going at this age? And he said, well, I, I'm... I, you know, drafted a little poem that kind of describes it. He says, uh, I can see with my bifocals, uh, my dentures are working fine, my hearing aid is dandy, but I sure do miss my mind. And, uh, uh, you know, I feel like we're kind of getting there, and it's, it's more and more a struggle to identify with you folks and this generation and I realize there's a real gap here, but, but I'm a real student and, and really trying to make that effort. And I've tried, figured out, you know, something that may help, you know, after seeing David and Darren up here, you know, this, this may just kind of connect us and get my shirt tail. Okay, now maybe, uh, okay, a little more, a little more with it, uh, you know, to communicate tonight. And maybe you guys will listen to me some, but... Uh, you know, I, I'm just real excited. I, I, I get to speak in churches uh, all over the country and, you know, mobilizing for missions, challenging people, the Great Commission. And every now and then, I am so blessed by being a church that gets it and has a heart for missions. And, you know, we, we led the Southern Baptist Mission Program, uh, over 45,000 churches, you know, and large uh, mission-sending organization, but you put all of the wealth and resources of all those churches together, a total of 2.5% of their budget goes to missions and reaching the nations. And we have this large Lottie Moon Christmas offering where every year the churches just really give generously for missions. And I've been saying, someday I'm going to find a church that really gets it. And once a year, they take an offering for their annual church budget 
And everything else that comes in Sunday after Sunday goes to missions and reaching the nations. That, you're getting there. In fact, uh, you know, I kind of trace uh, Darren on Facebook, Twitter a little bit and so forth and see him. Every time he's on some mission trip overseas and everything, I ask Russell, who's pastoring conduit these days? I mean, Darren, he's never there. He, he's, he's on a mission trip. And I, it's just really exciting and such a blessing for us to be here with you and see uh, your heart and what God is doing to you. But I want to remind you that a mission conference of this nature is not just an opportunity for you to hear reports of what your mission gifts and trips are doing and hear stirring reports from missionaries that you go to support. But what this is all about is an opportunity for God to speak into your life what is your place? What would God have you to do to fulfill the mission of the church? For you see, the church is simply a collective group of a body of believers. And the church is going to do no more than each individual collectively is willing to do and give to the Lord. So I'd like for you to just, just bow your heads and let's just uh, take a moment before continuing. And pray that God would speak into your heart, that your heart would be open to hear God speaking to you as you hear these missionaries, as you hear how he's working overseas, and to realize how narrow and limited and providential the potential in your life has become until you lay it on the altar and willing to follow whatever God would have you to do giving, sending, going. How wonderful to be a part of a church that gives you those opportunities to go and to be a part of what God is seeking to do to reach the nations. And Lord, I pray that you would speak into our hearts. I pray that those that come uh, to these times uh, through this weekend, Lord, would just be aware of that there's a special purpose for why they're here. It has to do with lifting up Jesus and glorifying your name among the nations and reaching those who do not know you that are hurting and suffering in our own country, in our community. And Lord, give us hearts that are open and responsive and obedient. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we uh, can reflect over many of experiences in uh, more than 50 years that we've been involved in, in missions, traveling to 155 countries. It's been an awesome position as president of our Southern Baptist Mission Board to be in a position that uh, gives you an, a global overview of how God is at work around the world. And when I think of some of the most fascinating experiences, of course, we studied in Indonesia, still consider that home, and lived in Thailand and Singapore, uh, directed work in India and South Asia, but have traveled to many other places. It would be hard to really nail down what is the, the most memorable and most significant. People would ask us, well, what is the favorite place you ever visited in all the mission trips and places you went? We'd always say, the last one. You know, you just come back with that place in your heart. You know what I mean, Darren? I mean, you just, it just grabs you, that, that last place that you went. 
And I can remember uh, just astounded to find myself in North Korea back in the 90s. Southern Baptist has mobilized a lot of support for famine relief when they were just going through a devastating famine. And I was just amazed that I would be standing in North Korea being welcomed by government officials who knew who Southern Baptists were. And I just thought, in the providence of God, could he have allowed that hurtful, suffering famine to crack open the door to a compassionate ministry that the gospel would be planted? But you know what I discovered? The gospel was already there. We were walking along a city in a market area, and uh, I walked by this elderly lady selling vegetables on, on, you know, leaning up against her wall, and I didn't realize what I'd heard till I walked by. I grabbed the pastor that was with me and turned around, said, turn around, listen to that lady as we walked by. She was humming Amazing Grace. And you realize the gospel that was planted years ago is still there. We looked to travel for days in Algeria, saw over 200 churches that had been started by Kabil Berber Arabs in one of the most terrorist hotbeds of northern Africa, traveled in Cuba where believers at that time were still under and still are under repression, government restrictions, and I remember the pastors telling us, you know, asking from the Department of Religion permission to start a new church or to build a building for a church that existed, or either to repair an old church building, and they would never get permission. And finally, the director of religious affairs said, listen, this is a socialist government. You will never get permission to start a new church. Your people will just have to worship in their homes. Okay. <laughs> so they started worshiping in homes, and they started multiplying, and and just from place to place as they would outgrow. And they are on track to reach 100,000 house churches in Cuba. They have discovered that they have documented 70% of the population of 13 million have either heard a presentation of the gospel or seen the Jesus film because it's spreading at a grassroots level where people who would never go into a church building feel absolutely comfortable gathering with their neighbors to hear the gospel. But I think the most notable thing that Bobby and I would, uh, would share would be experience of going to Iran. Of course, it's very prominent in our news these days and quite intimidating, has been for some time. And I remember our strategy coordinator for the Persian people calling me one day and said, listen, you've got to come to Iran and see what God is doing. I said, well, we can't get into Iran. Well, get together a group of businessmen and we can set up a cultural tour and, you know, the pretense at, you know, researching in possible investments in Iran and we can, we can make it happen. Well, I get excited about going to new places and new adventures, but I'll, I'll have to admit, I, I one real excited about going to Iran. I mean, you don't get a lot of positive information about Christians and Americans out of that country. And I thought, well, maybe we ought to defer this for two or three years or maybe 10 years, you know, 15 years, and then consider. Said, no, you've got to come and see what God is doing. So, so we put this tour together. 
had this big bus. We traveled all over Iran for 10 days. And every day, God did something to reveal how he was at work in that situation. And um, one of the most intriguing experiences of that is to find on our itinerary the tomb of Esther and Mordecai. It's in Hamadan, which is near what was the old uh, capital, Babylon, you know, city of Babylon in that area of the country. And so as we were making our way toward Hamadan, we were uh, asking our tour guide about that, the geography of what we were seeing in that era of, uh, you know, Persian history. And she stopped suddenly and said, how is it that you folks know so much about Esther and Mordecai? I mean, we hadn't shown much intelligence about any of these other historic <laughs> figures they had been telling us about, and suddenly we were intrigued and just asking all these questions. Well, they had oriented us to be very careful and discreet, even in our personal conversation, lest they create suspicions about who we really were. Well, Bobby really has a problem with that, my wife. I mean, she's outgoing. She loves to talk about Jesus. So our Kurdish said, how do you know so much about Esther and Mordecai, she said, well, there's a book in our Bible about Esther. Well, uh-oh, now they knew we had Bibles. That means we were Christians. Well, what are we up to? You know, and we just all kind of froze. And our tour guide said, well, I didn't realize that. I've never read the Bible. Well, Bobby had been reading the book of Esther. I mean, here we were seeing where all of this happened. She had her Bible open to Esther, so she said, well, would you like to? and handed her her Bible. And our tour guide sat there and read through the whole book of Esther. And when she finished, she said, that was an amazing story. How this Jewish maiden became queen of Persia, and when the conspiracy arose to destroy her people, at risk her life, she intervened, and they, they were all saved, and it came to a, a beautiful conclusion. And then she said, but when I finished, I sensed there was more to the story. And Bobby sat down by her, opened her Bible and said, well, yes, as a matter of fact, there is. You see, over in here is what we call the Gospels. And it's a story of Jesus. And she began to link Esther and the promise of redemption for his people to Jesus. And the rest of our tour, she was sitting on the front bench with the Bible open and talking to that tour guide about, about Jesus. Well, you know, it was a, a fascinating experience. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> we, were, we were debriefing with our Persian team later in Cyprus after the trip, and every year we have a year a day of prayer and fasting for an unreached people group and that year was the focus on the Persians of Iran and uh, it wasn't just coincidental that they scheduled this trip at this particular time because the weekend we came out and were debriefing the trip was that day of prayer and fasting when Southern Baptist churches were praying for the Persians of Iran and our strategy leaders admitted the reason they had put that trip together and insisted we make it at this time is they figured nothing would so mobilize the prayers of our churches for Iran as the president of the International Mission Board being arrested and detained on that day of prayer 
and fasting. Now, I picked up the expression they were using, whatever it takes, <laughs> even to getting the president of the International Mission Board arrested. But you're familiar with that uh, familiar verse. This, this, is, this is where I'm going to focus. In Esther 4.14, when Mordecai is appealing to Esther to go in and intercede for his people, he said, but who knows, but you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. We got a glimpse of that kingdom, that ancient Babylonian kingdom, which you know the Bible says stretch from Ethiopia to India. Now just imagine even a modern day nation or kingdom occupying, subjugating peoples from Ethiopia to India. But there it was, this ancient kingdom. You can't imagine the extent of it. One of our items on our tour was to, to view the, what they termed the crown jewels, uh, which was a large room actually about this size uh, under the central bank vault of in Tehran. Now, I thought we were going to see some display cases with you know, crowns and scepters and, you know, jewelry. But it was a room this size with furniture and uh, bridles and, you know, harnesses of horses and clothes and all kinds of ornamental jewelry just covered with diamonds and rubies and emeralds. You could not imagine the affluence and wealth of that ancient kingdom in which Esther found herself. But you know, Jesus came a short time later, relatively speaking, declaring another kingdom. A kingdom that would make the Babylonian kingdom of Persia, the kingdom of Esther, pale into insignificance. It was a kingdom that was born in the heart of God before the foundation of the world. A kingdom in which God would reign that was given a glimpse to the prophets and the patriarchs, but became a reality when Jesus Christ came to earth and died on the cross to bring redemption and salvation that every people from every tribe and tongue and nation could be come into the kingdom of God and a part of that kingdom and he sent out his disciples to proclaim the good news of that kingdom. And one of the most amazing verses you'll find in the Bible, in Matthew 24, 14, where Jesus said that one day the good news of that kingdom will be declared in all the world to all peoples, and then the end will come. And I have just, speaking of years of giving global missions leadership, I think I look back on that experience that the most notable impression is an awesome sense of the providence of God that is moving to fulfill that prophecy of Jesus in our generation. I remember after becoming president of the International Mission Board, we'd been in Southeast Asia for 23 years, very limited in our awareness of what was going on, very provincial. And 
So one of my goals was to visit all the places all over the world where our missionaries serve. So first few years and just continued, just uh, constant travel, uh, never fulfilled that, that goal because it was a moving target that just kept expanding. But uh, I remember getting an itinerary for a trip uh, going to Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan, Tajikistan, and it just showed how, how limited and how provincial I was. I didn't have a clue where I was going. Where are these places? Am I going to Africa, Asia, where? In fact, I never even heard of them. It was like a veil of the Soviet Union had obscured this whole area of the world from our awareness. And this was in the early 90s, and things were chaotic and disarray. Uh, uh, even though the Soviet Union had disintegrated, that uh, remnant of communism was still dominant, uh, atheistic teachings, and uh, we were beginning to send some missionaries in and a uh, very uh, risky situation. And so we were gathered for a, kind of a prayer retreat with just a small handful of those initial pioneer missionaries that had gone into Central Asia in a recondite location and, uh, and praying in one night. And as we were praying, I heard one of them pray, Lord, I just praise you for the 70 years that the Soviet Union dominated these peoples. And, uh, you know, I thought, say what? That kind of broke my meditation. Who would be thanking God for this communist atheistic ideology dominating these people, prohibiting religious freedom for 70 years? Praise you, Lord. Thank you for 70 years of Soviet domination. And I asked him about it later and, and said, why, why would you pray something like that? And he said, well, Jerry, it's not the sparsely populated Middle East where the Muslim shrines are, but actually the trade routes of Asia, the ancient Silk Road has been the heart of propagating the Islamic faith for centuries. And in a mere 70 years, that's the word he used, a mere 70 years of domination by the Soviet Union, that Muslim stronghold has been emasculated, leaving the people spiritually destitute and open to the gospel at this time. And I thought, what's 70 years of Babylonian captivity? in God's plan and providence for his people Israel. So what's 70 years of communist domination in the 20th century if God can use it to break down the strongholds of religious resistance and soften the hearts of people to create an openness and readiness to hear and respond to the gospel? What we see happening in our world is not the result of mission strategies and Western diplomacy. It's the power and providence of God. It's what the prophet Haggai said. God is shaking the heavens and earth, overthrowing the thrones of kingdoms, destroying the powers of nations. God is moving in providence and power to fulfill his mission. And he's called us into the kingdom for such a time as this. Uh, 
you, we need to look beyond the headlines. God is using global events to turn the hearts of people to Christ as never before. Uh, during my early years in the 90s of leading the International Mission Board, researchers were observing the breakup of the Soviet Union and just advances and uh, diversity of growth of all kind of mission strategies and platforms and organizations and uh, just, it, it was a new era that uh, more advance of fulfilling the Great Commission occurred in the 1990s, the last decade of the 20th century, than in all the previous 200 years of modern missions since William Carey went to India. But listen, the decade of the 90s pales in comparison to what God is doing in the 21st century. I mean, just with the International Mission Board, we saw number of churches being started go from 3,000 to more than 24,000 a year every year. Over 100 unreached people groups average every year being engaged with the gospel for the first time. You see, God is using the warfare, the ethnic violence, the political disruption, the economic uncertainty, natural disasters to turn the hearts of people to a search for something that will give hope and security that can be found only in Jesus Christ. Folks, we need to look beyond the headlines and see a world in which God is at work, moving to fulfill his mission, that the kingdom of God would be reached around the world. One of my most notable experiences of traveling in India, where I coordinated our work for about 12 years while still on the field, uh, I remember uh, through some contacts, we were trying to build, couldn't have missionaries in India as such. Uh, we were creating itinerant mission, missionaries that would just kind of go in and do as much as they could for a few months in training and equipping and partnering with others. And someone connected us with a Christian group up in the Khan Hills of Orissa in a tribal area there. And uh, we were going up there to the believers they would get together in an annual convocation and build a huge brush arbor and so i flew into a little city i would never heard of could hardly pronounce by the name of bubaneshwar and it was a little black grass landing strip and you know i thought we'd arrived at our destination but they met us in this dilapidated jeep and and drove for nine hours winding up through the hills and jungles to reach the site of this annual Baptist meeting that they were having among these tribal people. And uh, I was really getting nervous as we just kept going. We'd lost, you know, long since not seen any civilization as we knew it. And when I got there, more than 3,000 people had gathered from every village in the Khan Hills. Now, as we went along, the pastor that was my translator was telling about these people. He said, a generation ago, I mean, they, they were totally pagan. They had never heard the gospel. In fact, mix of Hinduism with their tribal superstitions and beliefs. In fact, every year when they would plant their crops, they would sacrifice one of their children and sprinkle his blood on the fields, believing the gods would give them a fertile harvest. And 
you know, I was getting more and more uncomfortable <laughs> the situation. But there were 3,000 people, and they, they weren't very time conscious. They were just waiting for us to get there, and they gathered to begin the program. And the man who seemed to be in charge shouted something. And all the people shouted in response, and he shouted again, and again they responded. You know, I thought it was kind of like, hip, hip, hooray, hip, hip, hooray. And the pastor said, you know what they're saying? That man is shouting, who is the Lord? And all the people are responding, Jesus is Lord. Who is the Lord? Jesus is Lord. And I thought, here is like the people of Isaiah said, a people in darkness who were not a people who had now become the people of God. But you know, the verse that came to mind was that passage in Philippians that says, one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. They got it. They got it. And one day, every people, every nation, every language will shout that Jesus is Lord. Could it be that God has placed you in the kingdom for such a time as this. When I've seen how God is moving throughout our world, probably the last six years before retirement, I would tell the missionaries that we would commission and send out that I believe we were sending them out to be the last generation of missionaries. That they would be there sharing the gospel, planting churches when the last nation and last people group is touched by the gospel and the Lamb of God will return. You know, Esther had no idea why she found herself in the kingdom. The unlikely circumstance of being selected as queen of Persia until a crisis arose against her people. And you know, even after she, uh, you know, revealed the conspiracy, the law of the Medes and Persians couldn't be changed. And the king had already decree decreed that the Jews would be annihilated and destroyed. So to counter this, he issued a second decree that authorized they be warned of this threat and be given official government permission to defend themselves. And in the eighth chapter of Esther, it's amazing. I preached on Esther for many years. I never even got over, got over there, but it said that they, they took that message and they translated it into the language of all the people's from Ethiopia to India. And they chose the fastest steeds from the royal stables and they sent out couriers to take that message of warning, which was a message of salvation, literally, to the people so they could defend themselves and be prepared for this, this crisis to all the far corners of the kingdom. It was urgent a message of hope, a message of deliverance so they could be saved instead of being killed and annihilated. 
And as I read that, I thought, you know, in an ancient empire like that, all of those tribes and peoples, what if they never could find someone in Babylon there that could translate a particular language? And those people never got the message. Or, or what if a, a courier, having started out along the way, got distracted or diverted or, or stopped out of his own comfort and convenience and never proceeded with his task to get the message to a remote tribe? And they perished. Not because the king had not issued a decree of salvation, but because the people never heard. That's the world we live in today. A message went out 2,000 years ago of salvation for all peoples. But we haven't even translated the Bible in more than 2,000 languages of the people today. We've stopped short. We've been diverted. We've been caught up in our own programs and activities and holding on to our own comforts and insecurities. And more than 3,000 people groups living a lifetime, dying, have never heard the name of Jesus. I was back in Central Asia just a year before I retired, about 15 years after that initial trip. Uh, I shared more than 400 missionaries now on the ground in all those countries of Central Asia. And uh, I was just amazed to see what God was doing. I asked our regional leader, I said, how many of the peoples, the ethnic, linguistic cultures and peoples of Central Asia have been evangelized, of course, not in terms of everyone being a saved, but in terms of having heard the gospel and churches being planted and, you know, the multiplying among that particular language group. And he responded immediately, said, so far we've seen churches planted and multiplying among 23 of the major people groups of Central Asia. And my heart just burst with praise to God. But then I asked him the wrong question. I said, well, how many people groups in Central Asia have yet to be engaged with the gospel, with the Christian witness? He lowered his head. I thought he was thinking, calculating a response, but he knew. When he looked up, tears had filled his eyes. His voice was choked with emotion. He said, Jerry, we can identify over 300 people groups in Central Asia that have yet to be touched with the gospel. And I'll never forget his next words. He said, you know the most difficult thing about being a regional leader responsible for our mission work in Central Asia? is every year in our strategic planning of how we're going to reach the peoples of Central Asia, looking at our limited personnel, 
limited resources, and having to decide which of these people groups will be deprived of hearing the gospel yet another year. I came back from that trip with a question burning in my heart. By what criteria should any people be deprived of hearing the gospel in our world today? When God has blessed us so richly with the resources, with the personnel, with the numbers that have the potential of reaching the whole world. God is moving in providence and power to reach the whole world. And he's called us into the kingdom for such a time as this. But on that trip to Iran, I too was reading back through the book of Esther and I was amazed as many times as I'd reached on, preached on Esther 4.14 that I'd not really noticed the context. But listen to the words of Mordecai as he's appealing to Esther to go in and intercede for his, his people. He says, do not think yourself that you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. But who knows that you've come into the kingdom for such a time as this. You see, Mordecai had a sense of God's providence. That God had promised a covenant. A Messiah would come through his people. And he knew God would find some way to deliver his people that that promise could be fulfilled and a Savior would come. But he said, Esther, listen. If you forfeit the opportunity that is yours... God's mission is going to be fulfilled, but you're the loser. You too will perish with it. And folks, I want you to know today, God's mission is going to be fulfilled. I've read the end of the book, and I see the words of Jesus being fulfilled. But if we forfeit the privilege of being a part of why God has called us, into his kingdom. We're the loser. But God's kingdom is going to be performed. You see, one day you came into the kingdom of God. When you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior and were born again and Christ came to live in your heart, you, you became a part of his kingdom. Why? Why you? When so many have never had that opportunity and privilege. Is it because God loves you more than the people of Central Asia or Africa and many other places that have never heard? I don't think so. God loves the whole world. Well, maybe it's because we're more deserving than they are. We live in such a moral, God-fearing society. God has allowed the gospel to you know, come to, uh, I don't think so. 
We're all just sinners saved by grace. So why is it that God has allowed us to know Jesus when so many have not yet had that opportunity? I don't know. I don't know. But I know because he has, we have a responsibility to be the ones to go and to tell others. You know, we've been taught to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Are we willing for God's kingdom to come on earth? It's contingent on allowing his will to be done in our life. You know, there's a significant point I want to make about Esther in closing. She was faithful and obedient. She intervened. But it was at risk of her life. There's a cost to obedience. On that trip to Iran, I remember there were a lot of old Armenian churches. And uh, you know, they were covered with tombstones and plaques commemorating pioneers and missionaries. Uh, to Persia and former era and I know we were leaving one of those ancient churches and uh, walking through the courtyard and one of our group noticed a flat tombstone there and called us over and the letters were worn it took a group effort to kind of decipher it but it was identified as the tombstone of Mary Catherine Ironside it said medical missionary to Persia who died in 1921 at the age of 49. And there was a four-line poem. It's difficult to read, but we finally deciphered it. It said simply this. She heard God's call, come follow. That was all. Earth's joys grew dim. Her soul went after him. She arose and followed. That was all. Will you not follow if you hear God's call? It's really rather simple. Just a decision to follow. You don't know what he's going to do in your life, where he wants you to go, what he wants you to do. But you'll never go until you say, I'll follow. And recognize you've been called into the kingdom for such a time as this. I've not shared this publicly before, and in a group like this, uh, I, I just feel compelled to share very personally. I think some of you are probably aware that our daughter, Russell's sister, is uh, a missionary in an unnamed place in Central Asia, has been there with her family, three of our grandchildren now for 15 years in a very remote, challenging country that I'll not name, but you'll know what I'm talking about. And since she's married, you'll not know her name. It's not Rankin. So <laughs> you understand the security issues and so forth. But um, we've been to see them, support them. We're proud of them, their devotion to take the gospel to such a place. 
But it's a place where Christians are not allowed, missionaries are not allowed, but in God's providence and their medical ministry, they've been able to serve there now for 15 years. They were home last year, and we enjoyed their time back in the States, and uh, they know I know too much uh, about situations and missionaries and places of risk and crisis and everything. And several times I just mentioned now, you know, while you're home, we just need to talk about the situation, you know, what your assessment is and contingency plans and, you know, how you're feeling about it and everything and just kind of brushed it off and, you know, they never really wanted to have that conversation. So we were helping them pack to leave on the plane the next day. And finally, I just forced the issue. I said, we're going to talk. Sit down. In your country, since you've been home, a missionary family from South Africa that they knew had been, the insurgents had stormed their compound and the whole family was killed. These were friends. And then just before they had come home, uh, three American doctors had been killed at a charity hospital. Again, people they knew. And I mentioned these incidences and just said, you know, we, we don't question your being there, but these things happen and we just need to know what you're thinking. And my daughter knew this was coming. She was ready for it. She said, listen, Dad, you need to understand when those incidences happen, we realize that could be us. Okay? We're not unrealistic. We realize that could be us. But isn't everybody going to die? Why would anybody want to die outside of God's will? So what's the big deal if you get killed? She said, I've heard you preach on Hebrews 11 about those who were tortured and suffered and martyred and could have been released, but for the sake of the kingdom. Am I not worthy? Are these people that we've gone to serve not worthy in God's sight of my life? End of conversation. And they were on the plane back. The next day, God has called us into the kingdom. There's a cost. There's a peoples are waiting for someone who will go. Will you pray with me? Lord, sitting a large crowd here tonight but it's a very significant crowd because each one here has come because of a sense of being a part of something bigger than themselves, bigger than conduit church, but a part of something that is God-sized and a vision to make a difference and impact a lost world. And Lord, you've led uh, Conduit in many directions and blessed in ways they could have never envisioned and still are just incredulous to think what has been done 
for the sake of your kingdom and your glory among the nations. But Lord, there's much more. And it'll never be accomplished until each one is obedient to your call and willing to say, I'll follow. Whatever you want me to do, wherever you want me to go. And Lord, I pray that beginning tonight, our heart will be open to seek you and your will. And to hear your spirit speak to our hearts in a personal way. Even as you speak to this church in a corporate way. May you find us responsive and obedient. In Jesus' name, amen.